Welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the key people and decisions that shape Australia's cities and the infrastructure projects within them. I'm Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. We're on to our 11th episode today, and for this episode, we're joined by the CEO of one of Australia's most transformative public transport organisations, Sydney Metro Authority's John Lamont. John's background prior to his life as a public transport exec is actually incredibly varied, and he brings a very unique perspective and experience to the role. Uh, keep in mind, though, this episode was actually recorded a couple of months ago, just before the recent announcement of an investment decision from the New South Wales government for Sydney Metro West. So a few things might pop up in that context, but it actually gives us a very interesting insight on John's thinking while he was working to get that decision over the line. So without further ado, here's our chat with John. John Lamont, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. You're relatively new to your role and we'll go into some broader detail um, through the day, but maybe you could kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I think I've had a little bit of an odd background for this job. Uh, I've done 32 years uh, in the Royal Air Force, uh, started out flying, uh, I was flying uh, Hercules transports down in the Falklands um, and I've gone on to command my own squadron uh, in former Yugoslavia. Uh, I've gone on to run my base during Gulf War II, uh, and then uh, I've gone on progressively to go into various jobs in Whitehall, uh, in London, working for government, um, in strategy and in finance and in planning for logistics. And then a third section of my career, which was in um, logistics and procurement and ending up as finance director for defence equipment support, buying everything from aircraft carriers to submarines, tanks, you name it. So um, very much a big project side towards the end of it. Uh, and then when I came out, I joined uh, Tube Lines, uh, part of Transport for London. I was chief exec there. So running three of the underground lines, uh, Jubilee, Northern and Piccadilly lines. Uh, and an interesting time because it was leading up to the 2012 London Olympics, which was obviously a real high point uh, for me. Then having done that, I was delighted to get the chance to go and run all the different forms of transport in Greater Manchester uh, in UK. Um, particularly, uh, it's the largest capital program outside London, but particularly uh, expanding the mass transit network um, and putting in quite a lot of new infrastructure in terms of bus interchanges, cycle infrastructure, all, all kinds of things, really. Um, and that was great grounding, really, to come here um, only six months ago and take over as City Metro Chief Exec. Uh, so is the biography is going to be called From Flying Planes to Building Trains? <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's it's been an interesting background. Yeah, okay. Adrian thought of that one earlier. I, yeah, I came up with that myself. <laughs> uh, I was really impressed with it. Um, so maybe we'll take a step back. Obviously, English accent, and you've heard about going from uh, the RAF and, and through the various different things. Ed, what, what did you study? You're an engineer or...? No, um, again, a little bit uh, of a different background. I started off my first degrees in mathematics and geology uh, and then got sponsored through uh, university by the Air Force. Um, Did you so, always want to be a pilot or was that? Yeah, I'm one of those irritating kids that just wanted to fly uh, and uh, I got to live my dream, really. So it was uh, pilot or defence forces so that you I, wanted? I started, well, I always wanted to fly jets for the right. Air Force. That's all okay. I always wanted to do. Uh, and then um, I started off training as a as a pilot, uh, realised I hadn't got all the skills to get me the, the, the whole way, so I've been solo and done all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I went on to be a navigator and I spent most of my time as a, uh, as a navigator, uh, which was a great, um, very rewarding uh, career. Really enjoyed it. And, and so when you were in the RAF, that's when you studied... So I, took, I, I did my uh, degree before I joined the Air Force and then they sponsored me for the last two years of my degree. Um, but then, you know, academically, I've gone on to do other things as well. So I've got a master's in defence studies and a PhD in history. Uh, so, you know, I've done quite a lot of things. Is there a family background in, in defence or, or is it uh, I think just your I think spent some time in the war in the Navy, but other than that, there's no great military background. It was just uh, something that I always wanted to do and, you know, I'd, I'd recommend it to everyone. It's a, it's a great grounding for people. It's, uh, it's surprisingly, uh, well, I wouldn't say common, but there's more than I expected, uh, certainly in this building, working in the infrastructure sector. There's a lot, there's a lot that... Um, there's a lot that I guess you can take from your background in defence to to your current roles and those infrastructure 
uh, and government roles. What what do you think those factors are that you're that you're able to take from your experience in defence? I think the military is really good at grounding people in leadership management, particularly. Uh, and I think that basic training is is really good. In fact, the amount of training that defence does is enormous compared with the commercial sector. So you get really good training in, in things like media training, uh, in strategy, in all the professional attributes. It's really, really well done by the military, wherever you are, be it UK or Australia. I think some of the other things that uh, it leads you towards are you don't get phased by much. Um, if you've been in conflicts, um, wherever they are around the world, um, and you're getting shot at, uh, it does concentrate the mind. So after that, you're quite calm about things, actually. Um, I think it, it allows you to think about empowering people. And I was talking to people this morning about uh, when I was flying and you'd send people off uh, in their VC-10 or Hercules um, for a complicated task and you'd expect them back in a week. Uh, and you think about that when the pilot, the, the captain is probably 23, 24 years old, got a crew of five around him, um, not an awful lot of experience. And you're asking them to uh, go off, uh, refuel a bunch of jets, take them to the far side of the States or the, the Middle East, uh, and you'll see them back in a week. And you, you have to, you learn about trust. Hmm. And I think that's really important. So empowering people, giving young people a chance, it's all of those sort of things. You were the CEO for, I think, the largest RAF base uh, in, in the world, I think four and a half thousand people I've, I've got written down here. Um, I imagine there were some casualties and some pretty heavy things that you had to deal with. Is that is that something that came up pretty frequently? Well, fortunately, it didn't come up very frequently, but I, th I think uh, some of the things, when you're leading a base like that, which it, it, you're right, it is the largest RAF base uh, uh, that we've got, um, but you're leading that through the Gulf War. Uh, and so this is your the first Gulf War. Second Gulf War second in this case. So all the troops going out to uh, to Iraq, um, it, it does focus the mind. And you're right, we did have the first 55 war dead came back through my place and I had to talk to all the families of those who sadly lost their sons. Uh, and it was an incredibly uh, powerful, sad moment. Um, but it brought people together because people wanted to you know acknowledge uh, the effort of the heroism of those people who'd served um to support the families uh, and i learned a lot you know just myself about how you deal with people but it's also i think there's a message about you know again talking to people this morning about the safety message that you get out of that um one of the reasons that people sadly lost their lives in iraq is because we didn't always have the right equipment um so the lesson from that is you give people the right tools to go and do the job uh, you learn about the media uh, from that. The media were very quick to react. You had to be on your game and, you, and you've really got to be, get the right message and right, set the right tone. So you, you learn a lot from experiences like that. Um, I'm not saying that anyone would want to go to war or anyone would want to live through that experience, but um, I got a lot from it. That was actually going to be my, my, my follow-up question is that, um, you know, there's the... the uh, any rail infrastructure or any public infrastructure really can be quite quite dangerous. I mean, does that does the experience that you've had make safety a, a, a more of a priority, you think, than uh, than you would otherwise have had? I think the actually the links between the military and railways have been quite historic and they've been quite closely linked. A lot of people who built railways mm. were ex-military people. And I think, you know, you go into any railway company, you pretty much recognize the structure as a military person. I think the safety side of it is also linked. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's the railways that lead the way. Um, because I think some of the safety culture that I found when I went to tube lines was a lot better than I'd seen in the military. Right. Um, and then there's sometimes when you think actually the military experience um, can give itself something to the railway. So um, I think um, the right tools for the job having competency frameworks, having uh, competencies frameworks that extend right down to the, the bottom layer, um, having that recognition of, of standards, uh, 
having properly properly trained, um, having clear accountabilities, roles, all that sort of thing, very clear in the military and useful to bring to the railway. So I think it's, you know, they can interchange between them. I just want to talk about the the phase of your career in Whitehall, where you're yeah. more in the kind of the, um, I guess, the large scale procurement, the, the, the broader piece. Can you just talk us through, it's a decision to, to stop being an operational member of the military and move to that space? Or well, I think you, you, sometimes you you, you you make your own luck. Uh, so I'd got to quite a senior role of running a base uh, and then um, suddenly I was brought in to uh, run a defence review and be part of that implementation team. Um, out of that fell um, a, a new branch that was going to look at logistics, which hadn't been thought about centrally uh, within Whitehall before. But, you know, we did that and I became part of that team. And out of that started to get into uh, the procurement world when we merged logistics and procurement together. Uh, so I um, naturally progressed along that route. And I really enjoyed that because it got me into the large procurements and understood how we dealt with some large manufacturers, um, many of whom I deal with still today in a different part of the same uh, same company. So, you know, the talluses of this world uh, I was dealing with in defence and I'm now uh, dealing you with them were since. mainly procuring things that move rather than kind of runways and key no, lines? No, well, I've actually done both because in my last job, which was uh, running strategy policy and plans for the Air Force uh, before I left, uh, was responsible for all RAF infrastructure. So all the runways, all the buildings, uh, large civils. So in my time, we rebuilt much of RAF North Holt, where the, the um, Royal Flights are, are, are run from um, and the home of the Queen's Colour Squadron. Uh, so you get interesting things to do, like um, how can you make sure that uh, the Queen's Colour Squadron have got a decent place to practice their marching, um, how the RAF band can practice without annoying everyone else around them. So there's some really <laughs> there you know, some fun that? things and, you know, how you can preserve all the RAF's um, archaeological material uh, in, a, in a vault. So, you know, some really interesting, fun challenges to have. Uh, so you've got PhD, you've done the, the work in Whitehall and do you make a decision that it's time to go to something completely different? Or, well, not completely different from what you've told us. There is an arc to this, but... It's quite a leap going from a career in the military to um, you know, running tube lines. Uh, can you maybe talk us through that? Yeah, well, I'd love to say it was um, uh, a carefully considered decision uh, that I talked to the headhunters and or it was through the networking. It wasn't actually. It was my mum cut an advert out the paper and said, <laughs> why don't you do that, my boy? Um, and that's how I got into uh, Transport for London. And... Uh, it, it was an ex it really interesting process to go through, um, uh, and I came up to uh, the final interview with Boris, uh, Boris Johnson, yeah. uh, and with Peter Hendy, uh, and uh, they offered me the role as chief executive of Tube Lines. It was, you know, it, and and it was great and surprising how easy it was to move into Tube Lines, which right. is why I say this link between the military and the railways is is quite. Um, quite easy actually because it is structured in a way that military people recognise again one of my main contractors on the signalling contract was Talis who I just spent uh, years working with in defence so there was commonality there Absolutely. Um, producing infrastructure like rebuilding Green Park Station in London and Heathrow 123 uh, which were not entirely dissimilar from rebuilding uh, infrastructure on, on, on airfields um, yes, there was a new language to learn about the railways and they loved the three line, the three letter acronyms uh, in railways, but actually none of that was difficult. And the fundamental thing they needed was leadership management. Yeah, That's what they were crying out for, someone to lead them through. And, you know, hopefully I was able to add a bit of that and, you know, tube lines worked. And I came in at a bad time when the headline in the Evening Standard was all about 800 people walked out of tunnels. Um, which was partly because of the signalling issues that we got on the uh, on the system, uh, but it, with working with Talus and we were able to get solutions and we put everything in place so that you know little less than two years later and we come to the Olympics uh, and the story is all about the games and the sport, not about transport, which was what everyone had been worried about. So I think that was really good. Um, I do want to talk about Manchester. Yeah, let's get to that because I so it's a pretty big change. So. 
Manchester, you ran all of the transport. That's and right. there's light rail, heavy rail, buses. Yeah, so some of it we owned and some of it we were more responsible for uh, bringing together because, as you'll know, heavy rail in UK, uh, engineering provided by Network Rail on a national basis, um, a number of franchised operators. So it was more a case of with six operators on our patch trying to bring it all together to get the right outcomes for our people on the ground because we got 2.8 million people in Greater Manchester, many of whom relied on uh, on that railway. So trying to get the right outcomes for people was was the challenge. Uh, in the case of light rail, we owned it. Uh, we got a contractor in to run it for us, but we wanted to expand it. So we ran that expansion program. Um, we did six line extensions in my time, um, and we opened it up to new places and brought new opportunities, I'd like to think, for the whole of Greater Manchester. One of the things I find the, the challenge for maybe for engineers in the infrastructure sector is having to deal with that whole more political side of getting the funding for projects and managing to deliver on. So Manchester's a devolved government, but the funding still comes from the central government, is that right? So uh, there was a mixture. It was one of the first city deals, which um, actually I think inspired uh, Western Sydney for their city deal. And uh, what there were, I think, have been now around four versions of that city deal or iterations of that city deal. But broadly, uh, that came on the back of um, thinking about um, whether a uh, congestion charge should be used in Greater Manchester that would bring in funds to uh, fund transport improvements. And that was put to a referendum and everyone said, well, we like the transport improvements, we just don't want the congestion charge. Uh, and actually a modification of that then became the city deal where government put in uh, a large amount of the money, but the rest of it was brought in locally uh, and local funding so that it was very much, you know, if you want this, you fund this yourselves. Uh, and that brought uh, the increase in the light rail network and the rapid expansion of that and all the interchanges that went with it and a guided busway and all kinds of new infrastructure. Uh, and that was the city deal. And that was the start of it really in UK. After all the, the, the good work in Manchester, um, you've joined the rest of the British diaspora of rail experts to Australia. Um, had you heard of, of the, the metro network being rolled out here? Is that something you had in mind before before you came or was it another opportunity that came along similar to the city? So this was an opportunity that came along and it came along at a good time for me having done six years in Manchester and I think um, people in, in, in roles, there is a natural lifespan to that and about six years found, felt a good time to move on. The opportunity that was presented here was enormous and is enormous. Absolutely. Uh, and I think... Um, probably people around the world just do not have uh, as much of an idea about simply how much infrastructure is going on in Australia and particularly here in Sydney uh, as they should do. Do you think it's fair to say that even Sydney siders don't really have an appreciation of how big it is? Like, on a global scale, it's big and maybe people haven't seen that it's bigger than elsewhere. I think it, it, it's, it's hard for people here. You, we've almost become taken for granted that we're going to get lots more infrastructure, but you know, on a global scale, this is vast. There is nothing on this scale anywhere in the world right now. We were talking earlier about um, some projects around the world that haven't gone as far as they might have done in California um, and the challenges that rail in UK is facing and having to scale back a bit. There is nothing on the scale that uh, we're doing in Sydney here, not just Sydney Metro, but the, the road rollout, uh, more trains, more services, increasing Waratahs, you name it. Um, and not just in transport as well, but, you know, the, the, the sort of um, health infrastructure that's going in, the whole range of it, the size of it is just enormous. So, And was that, was that the appeal for you that, uh, that made you well, want to I come out? There, I think there were two or three things. Um, one, it's Sydney. Uh, what's not to like? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, as we look out over the harbour, what attracted you to Sydney <laughs> rather than Manchester? <laughs> uh, it was a tough choice of Salford Keys or, or Sydney yeah. Harbour. Um, look, I think uh, coming to Sydney, Sydney is a fantastic place, uh, but the project is great, not just because um, it's a game changer uh, as a railway, uh, and it is, uh, but also because uh, the placemaking that we can do and the ch opportunities that offers uh, and taking 
um, an old railway system, very well run, but nevertheless providing something new and providing 21st century transport to one of the global destinations in the world. That's a real opportunity. There isn't anything like this in transport anywhere in the world. Who wouldn't want to come and do that? It, we talk about you know, the biggest public transport project in Australia, but I'm pretty sure it's the biggest public transport project in the world right now. Um, with all the lines that are coming off, it, 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 it's huge. Yeah. Uh, to be associated with that um, and to put my stamp on it for a few years is a real privilege. It's interesting you mentioned the, the existing transport network because Howard Collins is obviously running that. Would you have worked with him when he was uh, at, when he was running the Tube in London and you were in Greater Manchester? That's right. He was the Chief Operating Officer for London Underground and I was uh, running the separate organisation of Tube Line. So right. we knew each other uh, from there. Uh, but that's, you know, we, we obviously um, have connected up since we've, we've, we're both here. Uh, but that's quite useful, actually, to have those relationships that um, we had so many years ago. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's really helping uh, develop the network because Sydney Trains and Sydney Metro need to be developed hand in hand. Uh, and the, uh, whether it's the interchanges, the work that we do together, it has to work together to provide a transport solution, not just a railway solution. That, that is an interesting point. They, 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 they need to work hand in hand. And Sydney Metro Authority is now a, it's now a statutory authority. It's not just That's right. delivery. Um, how do you see it fitting into the broader cluster, um, given that in some, well, the, the new lines, certainly the ones that I'm aware of are, are all metro lines. And there's, we're even converting some of the existing Sydney trains lines. What do you see as the future working relationship between those two networks? Well, I think we all form part of the Greater Sydney uh, Division within um, uh, Transport for New South Wales, and that's absolutely right. So that uh, if anyone wants to talk to us from the outside, then they're looking at one body that can talk about transport solutions for New South Wales and for Sydney in particular. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right approach to it. Uh, within that, we've got specialist areas. So Howard running Sydney trains and very much focused on optimizing that service uh, across the greater Sydney area. Uh, and for myself, uh, not just building the railway, but now running uh, a line as well. Uh, and we just have to work together and we do that pretty well, I think. You mentioned also the uh, the placemaking uh, responsibility that Sydney Metro Authority has. That's a, we spoke to to uh, Rod Staples recently about that as well, and it's a it's a very interesting um, new role for a, a transport agency in in Australia, and it kind of recognises the like you said before that transport is the enabler of of a whole bunch of placemaking outcomes. Um, how how far do you think that role uh, should extend? obviously over and in close vicinity to the station but should it go should it be further as well or, or should it literally just be what you know the tower above above a station look i think placemaking's got an awful lot of um meanings to various different people uh, but when i talk about placemaking certainly at the station it's about what can you put in around that station that makes it more of a hub and not just a place that people are passing through very quickly. Yeah. So why wouldn't you have um, coffee facilities? Why wouldn't you have play areas for kids? Why wouldn't you have a park where that's appropriate? Just go to Castle Hill and see that. Um, why wouldn't you have proper retail facilities um, so that it becomes a place for itself? Can you bring in the community? Can you offer pop-up facilities for the community? And I think there are opportunities uh, in there to do that sort of thing. Can we do more around the area around it? So how can we work with councils and local communities around what that sort of development should be around it? Now, in some cases, we're working with Landcom on the Northwest uh, to make the best disposals of the land we've had to take up to build that network and how we can best use those. So we will do that. And that's, that's one form of, of placemaking because... Mm -hmm. You know, in areas like Talawang, why is it called Talawang? Well, it's a new community uh, that was ne wasn't really thought of as the, as Talawang. It was going to be Kachigong Road mm -hmm. up until not that long ago, but it's become Talawang because it's a new community and there are new estates going in around there. So it's it's an enabler in that respect. What we're doing in the city, and you're talking about some of the overstation developments, 
there are variations on a theme within that. Uh, so yes, we can work with Macquarie at Martin Place to produce something that's um, a new um, iconic building uh, above the station because it's going to be the major station on the metro network. But it's way more than that because part of what they're doing is to produce community facilities uh, and we're talking them to them about well, what will be the right sort of things in there and I know uh, we've had um, a lot of feedback from people about saying well would a library be good in there would childcare facilities be good in there how, and do, you have how, an event how do you decide space? and well these are things that um, we can work with the um, uh, proponents of it the Macquarie's uh, and Len Lease to come up with good solutions but I think it's more than that because then if you go to Waterloo and look at what we can do with the local community, um, in this case, urban growth, um, now part of um, Infrastructure New South Wales, to look at the whole precinct and how that could be developed. So I think, look, there are various different forms of placemaking that we can do. And as we look forward to Metro West uh, and Greater West going out uh, to the new airport, there are real opportunities to look at well, how can we use it as an enabler to shape the area and shape development and try and see how um, things could develop far outside just the station boundary? Yeah. Um, can we talk about Sydney Metro Authority for just a moment? Um, it sort of feels like quite a different phase for the Metro Authority. There's the In the last few months, there's been the opening of the, um, the Northwest Metro. There's been... Um, uh, the establishment of it as an organisation, a new CEO, it, it feels like it's a step change and there's you know more permanent staff. And can you just talk us through that, the background to those changes and then perhaps some of the cultural aspects of, of looking forward? Well, I think one of the things that struck me when I first came to Sydney Metro was that um, it's a very values-driven organisation and it's been that right from the start. And Rod Staples was there at the start and set those things out, not least customer at the centre. Uh, and that's part of the DNA uh, of the organisation. And he, when it was 20 people, uh, a Northwest Rail uh, link, that's the sort of culture it's set. And those things are enduring. Uh, but you're right, as it's... Um, got now City and South West as a project to deliver, and now with two more big projects, it is constantly evolving. Uh, evolving to the state now that, as you say, we're a separate statutory uh, authority uh, because of the size and scale of what we're doing, and it's an enduring program. Uh, it's got something like a 15, 20-year order book uh, now for the metros that we're going to be developing. So it is changing, but there has been the next step change, which was the opening of Northwest, when it became not just a project delivery organisation, but responsible for an operating railway. And that has changed the structure of the organisation, but it's also changed the culture of the organisation as well. So that you are responding minute to minute to what goes on on the metro. You have to because, you know, that's what we do. Uh, we're responsible for the customers that are travelling on there every day. It does change the organisation. And I think the placemaking element is a thing that we've started but haven't exploited yet and that will be the next evolution of the organization as we do more with the organization get more into placemaking see what we can do and push the boundaries because we are a young uh, innovative um, uh, organization that wants to try and see where we can go see what we can do and the government's behind that how's the uh, how's the new line going so going great uh, i have to say uh, we've had our glitches in the first few weeks, but we expected to have those. But 140,000 people on the first day. I was one of them. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I did. It was fantastic. So far, um, a million, pa million passenger journeys in the first two weeks, which is pretty good going. Um, and then if you look at the numbers every day, then we're getting a steady 65 to 75,000 journeys a day just depends which day of the week. Some real high spots on Sundays, which seem to be incredibly popular with people, uh, and some places that are suddenly taking off uh, in the past patronage. But I think it's, it's way more than that. Um, some of the stories that we pick up from people around uh, how their journey into work is so much easier, how they can get home to see the kids before they go to bed, how they Mac University suddenly becomes an opportunity whereas it wasn't before because it was too difficult to get there. There's lots of stories out there that are really fantastic. We can see already that bus journey times are decreasing. Um, people are coming off the bus, they're going on to Metro. The journey times are decreasing. We can see the M2 flowing a lot better. 
we know that we're taking cars off the road. So it has to be um, a much better uh, solution for North Northwest Sydney that, frankly, they just didn't have an option before. We've given them that. So it's, it strikes me that it would be a really good project to go back and do a post-completion review and look at the performance you know, in six months' time versus what was projected in the business case to then to inform the subsequent projects, and particularly around the way people are using Absolutely. The so so um, this is a project where we've already set out on being very clear on measuring the benefits so that we can do that post-project evaluation uh, and we can look at it in six months, a year, five years, and say, well, how did that go? Because I think we've got the opportunity to experiment a little bit on the Northwest and tune it a little bit and see what, what's right, what's wrong. And then we can take that forward and learn as we go into city and southwest and then onto Metro West. Are there already some emerging insights about things that went better or worse than, than expected? I think there have been lessons around um, how we work with the contractors to uh, do our trial running and whether we can do better on that. Uh, there are things that we can already see in the design of the trains where we think, do you know what, if we had a, another go, we might tune that and we might get uh, a slightly better design. So when we get the new trains for Metro West, we'll get the next uh, level on. You're always learning. You've got to be that kind of organisation. You've got to be innovative. You've got to take these things forward. And, and what about the um, the stations and what's around the stations and some of that placemaking? And there's, there's, there's probably good and bad examples on the... Northwest, is that so, fair? So I think we're early days to, to really look at that. But I think the design has been really well uh, liked. Um, people do appreciate that. I think they like the light line, the whole colour scheme that um, not only reflects the local community in, in the colours that are there and Cherry Brook with cherry colours in the glass and everything else, um, but also means that those who've got particular forms of impairment can recognise where their stations are using that colour. I think there's, there's a whole list of things that are really good about that. Um, I think we've through 4,000 extra car parking spaces, um, we've sort of recognised that there is a need there to link up cars to the railway so that we can give people a, a viable alternative. Um, I think we're learning through that and seeing where car parks fill, how long does it take them to fill, how can you do that. Um, I think we've got more to do with working with apps to give people even better information. So there's a lot of things that we're learning as we go. Um, I think the areas around the stations, uh, people like the sort of facilities that we put in. Um, I think we can do more of that. We, we, we thought we would open and with some of those see how it goes before we introduce more facilities. But now we've got a picture of it, we can start to introduce more of those um, facilities, do the precinct making that we always thought we would. And um, so we've probably dealt with the rail line that, that's open and operating. Um, just talk us through broadly the, the, the next few phases of, of the Metro project and, and then how that's going to make the organisation evolve to, to Absolutely. So Northwest is phase one of five, really. Uh, the city section is the next phase. And uh, you'll have seen in the media how our four tunnel boring machines are getting on, um, breaking through, most recent one at, at Crow's Nest, uh, and onwards they go. The tunnel boring machines are getting going great guns. Um, in the next week, uh, we'll be taking a look at the next tunnel boring machine, which as it prepares to go underneath the harbour. So uh, just talk through that one, because that one's quite fancy, isn't it? It is. So um, these are uh, the four tunnel boring machines we've got at the moment have been a real good development of the machines that we used on the Northwest. So again, learning lessons from what we did before, these are now really good machines and they're moving at speed. So we'd anticipated around about 180 meters from each machine a week, and some of them have been doing anything up to 250. So, you know, pretty what, good. What's the, how, how, how can they be performing so much better? What's the mechanics of that um, that's leading well, I to think, that Well, I think what, you're, what you've got here is, uh, a good uh, contract with a good contractor, uh, a good consortium in CPB and John Holland, very experienced now, good teams that have been working together for a while, have done things on the Northwest, uh, have applied the lessons here. So everything is now synced. The machines are tuned a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, the segment production at Marrickville has been a little bit better than we saw before. Uh, 
all the processes are there, the people are trained, and it shows the value of collaboration, which is one of the things in the 10-point plan that you might want to come back to, um, where it's it, this, this is how you actually evidence it and show that it can work. So they are doing a, a lot better. But the next machine that goes through is a specialist machine because it's going under the harbour. Um, the Sydney sandstone is quite permissive, but actually it's going to be working through some sediments uh, under the harbour. It needs more of a specialist machine. So that's what we've got in Kathleen, uh, which at the moment is sitting outside the offices here, um, being put ready to put in the ground, now virtually fully assembled, ready to go, and then it'll do the 800 metres out to Blues Point, um, and then we will draw it back again to do the second tunnel. So, um, But it's a pressurised... Yeah, capsule, exactly. Um, so uh, slightly different machine from the the current machines, just because of the uh, the pressures and the sediment uh, and the wetness essentially under the harbour. So it has to work in a different way. Are you um, ex expecting to? Because there's obviously there's like you said, fifteen to twenty years of of projects that are in in the pipeline already, and p potentially many more. Um, are you expecting to be mostly in project delivery mode for your for for the time that you're able to to be in the role, or or do you expect operations to take on more of the more of your attention? So I think it's going to be uh, the best of organisations because it's going to have project delivery and operations going on at the same time. So yes, of course, I'm looking forward to uh, the next section of City and Southwest um, opening in 23-24 uh, and the Southwest section opening in 2024. That's the next bit, the conversion uh, down, down to Bankstown. I'm looking forward to getting government approval to get on and do uh, Metro West, uh, where we hope to be in delivery in the early 2020s uh, and also uh, in Greater West, which is the fifth uh, project, which has to be complete when that airport opens at the end of 2026. So we're going to have an awful lot of project delivery um, going on, operating the first line and then gradually operating more and more lines. But then, you know, hopefully we'll be extending the metro further. Uh, and there are lots of uh, things being talked about from St. Mary's through to Schofields and on to Talawong uh, as one bit of the extension, uh, extending Metro West further, potentially out to the new airport, um, extensions to the Southwest. So there are lots and lots of extensions. They're all in the Future Transport 2056 plan. So it's not, this is something that's been thought through fairly carefully as to what this looks like. But as you build towards what could look like uh, over the next few decades, a 200 kilometer network of metros, you can really see uh, this taking off. So you, you're building 100 year assets in effect. Um, and the one thing we all know is that um, beyond the next few years, the, the certainty around what transport looks like diminishes. You know, we think about things like uh, electric vehicles, new apps, changes in the way people work, maybe off into the distance automation. Um, how do you plan for something that's so fixed in such an uncertain um, scenarios for the future? Yeah, and that's that's obviously a challenge. But I think what we recognise is that mass transit will always have a place. Uh, you will always want to move large quantities of people. And in our three-city concept, you've got to be able to move them between those three cities and around. So having a network that does that makes every sense. So... Um, Yes, you're absolutely right. Connected autonomous vehicles have got a great place to, a uh, great part to play in this. Electric vehicles, all kinds of things will take over and new travel patterns and all the rest of it. But I think whatever comes to pass, there's an awful lot of people still want to be moved around uh, between those, uh, those various places. So um, having a metro that can do that uh, is the right thing. Having opportunities to upgrade that and upgrade the technology, so signalling systems generally last around 15 to 20 years. Well, when you upgrade it, well, why wouldn't you increase the improve the technology then? Um, having the trains, well, they'll need some sort of midlife refurb, I, no doubt, at some point, where you've got an opportunity then to upgrade them uh, and, and take them forward. Um, in and even within the projects we're doing, we're already learning lessons from Northwest and City and Southwest that we can say, do you know what, for Metro West, well, why don't we think differently? Why don't we think about and challenge ourselves about what the power supply should be, what size train we should have, what facilities should should 
should it have um, and in Greater West, well, what will we need to get to the airport? What will a an airport of the 2030s really need? Um, what should we provide? So every stage along the way, we can improve, we can innovate, we can get the best solution. Are there things that you can do to build the hard infrastructure you're doing in a way that future-proofs for certain scenarios? Or, or is it just a case of when it comes to that refresh, then you that's when you make the change. Well, I think you can learn some lessons from London, really, because one of the things, 150, 160-year-old uh, underground network, fantastic as it is, is very much constrained by the hard infrastructure it's got. So you're pretty constrained in what you can do about it. Um, so here, the more opportunity you can... In, uh, can offer in the infrastructure you produce, the better it is, really. Um, there's a balance there because you don't want to um, pay a fortune for um, infinite possibilities. But nevertheless, to the extent you can, um, putting doing some future-proofing makes every sense. It is a... It is a, a, a delicate balance particularly for you know expensive infrastructure like like what you're building and it's it, uh, i mean there's a lot of pre- there are a lot of preemptive things that you could be doing with a view to potentially you know a future train line i think um the leppington example is the the, the most famous example in sydney where there was a lot of extra capacity built into the interchange there that might will will eventually link it up with the north south line um are there examples uh are there future lines that you're planning to accommodate with the the Metro West, the, the North South line, where you're you're taking some of those preemptive steps? So, um, as we look at the plans for Metro West and we look at Greater West, we're already thinking about well, let's build it with an eye to how those extensions might take place beyond that, mm. or if they want to go from Greater West and go up to Schofields and and down towards Macarthur. They're all in the 2056 uh, strategy, so they're all there. But if you know that that might happen, well, you'd build with that in mind and you'd think about, well, what size station would you build? How many carriages would you have? Alignments. All, and- all of those kind of questions. So exactly the alignments as well. So you build it in with a view that it could be expanded thereafter. So you've, um, it, with projects of this size, even though this is, uh, you know, the largest infrastructure investment program in Australia's history, there's, it's very hard to make a, a, you know, a single cash contribution for the entire, for the entire project. I think we had 6.4 billion allocated in the last budget. What, what do you do with, with that stage of money and how do you go from, um, are you confident that the whole thing has been secured or how, how do you operate in that, in that environment of uncertainty? We always put business cases to government and it's for the cabinet to decide um, how, to, how that should be uh, dealt with. What we're really pleased about in this budget is that we've got the commitment for accelerating Metro West, which is what that 6.4 billion uh, is for that you talked about. And likewise, 2 billion to get us started on uh, the Greater West. And we already had the previous federal commitment to, to 50% fund that. So um, this gets us off and gets us started. Um, we have a program, uh, um, which we obviously uh, get approved by the government, uh, and that gets us along the way. Um, how far we get beyond that, of course, is is down to the government of the day, and and you know they will uh, fund that as appropriately. But as you've seen, um, Northwest has been so successful. Um, government are committed to City of Southwest, committed to the other lines. Uh, it's a great great way forward for us. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. I just want to pause for a moment and think about the um, very relaxed way we throw around figures like $6.4 billion, which is a mind-bogglingly large sum of money. There is a, there is a question there of how that compares to... It, these, these numbers are big numbers. They are, and we, we've almost become desensitised to mm. them in, in, because of this program. How does that compare to, to, to the numbers you would have seen for similar rail lines in the UK? I think it's very hard to compare uh, the UK rail lines. I, I suppose the nearest comparator will be Crossrail yeah. uh, as a sort of uh, the same sort of line that uh, that we're talking about. But it gives you an idea of the size and scale, the complexity of these things, and they, they are expensive. I think our job is to make sure they're delivered in the most cost-effective value for money or um, way for the taxpayers of New South Wales. So that's, that's, that's what I have to do. Um, Look, you, you know, 
I'm certainly not desensitized to the amount of money. Um, this is what we do every day is to make sure that every cent, uh, every dollar is spent in the best way on these projects. Um, they are complicated. There are lots of interfaces. There are lots of contractors involved with these, uh, but we can produce really good solutions. So we've got acceleration of those projects. There's co some convergence of delivery dates, particularly around the Western Sydney airport. Um, if you uh, if you have lots of things that you need to do at once and you, you can't, um, you know, cost is what it is, um, quality you don't want to... Um, you don't want to compromise on and the timings are a set end date the cost goes up so um do you think that there's capacity to deliver huge amounts of tunnels in the australian market the capacity to deliver uh, an enormous amount of rail infrastructure the mechanical and electrical engineering that goes with that do, do we have that domestic supply chain to deliver it i think it's a challenge uh, for the whole infrastructure program across australia for contractors to deliver uh, and we're aware of that um, and what we have to do is when we present our uh, cases to government is reflect um, how these things interact and offer choices about how we can sequence these things so that it's affordable for government, um, but also makes sense from industry capacity. One of the big things for us is um, we're not just about building a railway or building place, but we're also about developing people. So we will put a lot of emphasis on training of people. Um, we will, um, through our contracts, ensure that they have a number of apprentices we will make sure that they uh, involve Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islanders in their uh, workforces. We will try and, uh, wherever we can, use Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander businesses to try and develop those. So we try in our small way to try and help grow um, the talent across Australia, because ultimately um, it will be great if we've built capacity through what we do. One of the side effects of uh, such a large uh, public transport investment program is um, an inevitable uh, op operate, OPEX uh, challenge that, that the government has to deal with. Um, I think this is probably the first budget where that's been properly acknowledged, at least in the media. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think Metro can do to assist with that? going forward? I think one of the things that Metro really does is provide a far better cost coverage than some traditional systems. So whereas... How, um, how does it compare? Do you, do you have so, the figures? So, so we're looking at trying to get something that's around 50-60% cost coverage. Really? Um, which is a lot better than uh, Sydney trains are able to achieve simply because of the age of the network and the manpower requirements that go with that. So that's 50% on operational? Yeah. So, uh, look, I think um, Metro's got the opportunity to be even more efficient in the long term. That's what automated railways can do for you. Um, and as the patronage grows, so we can improve things still further. Um, it's a step along the journey. I think as we gain an experience and, and look at how we can better do things, we can tune that even, even better. Um, but, you know, I think um, this is where uh, technology can help us reduce the long-term costs of running systems. And that's what Metro is all about. And you also have in the procurement model of, of Northwest is the, 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 the 15 years that are kind of locked in. Is it 15 years? Yeah, so we've got a public-private partnership, which is 15 years long. So uh, we've got an operator who is very much been involved with the build and then is going to run it. So they've got mm. skin in the game, uh, which helps them drive the most efficient solutions. This isn't something that an operator comes in and says, well, I would never have built it that way because mm. they've been involved in it right from the start. Yeah. So uh, I think they've got a sense of ownership of it uh, and we can drive decent solutions. So, so having delivered that integrated project at the front end, um, uh, one of the things I know will keep you awake at night is the integration challenges on, is it 22 or 24 contracts on the city and Southwest or the, the major components of that? Um, why the change from a, an integrated single purpose vehicle with um, operations, et cetera, involved and that having gone well to then a different model 
for the next part of delivery? Well, uh, not not quite. I mean, first of all, there aren't quite as many uh, interfaces as all of that. Uh, there's about 12 to 14 uh, big contracts in there. Uh, but we would intend to try and keep the PPP construct going as we go through City and Southwest. So that bit will continue. The bit you're referring to really is um, differences in who's delivering stations for us, being separate, uh, and some of the uh, track systems that uh, are then coming in. Uh, and that's partly a reflection of what the market would bear. Um, and the market told us that they could not sustain building all of those stations and the uh, the boxes above them uh, in one go. Um, they told us that there would be better ways of doing it. So that's what we've got. Uh, and we've then taken on some of the interface risk that goes with it. Are you equipped to do that? Um, Coming from a, a UK and a European background, I think we're very used to that being the model that is used elsewhere. So although it's relatively new for Australia, it's certainly not new globally. Um, so what we've got is uh, the people um, in-house now who can deliver that. Um, I won't pretend it's not it's, it's easy because it's not, uh, but it is the way we're doing it. Um, and I think we should have confidence from this is a standard way of doing it elsewhere in the world, and we're really running with it in Australia now. Um, I'm conscious of time, and we've um, uh, every podcast we've had so far, we've asked the same question at the end. Um, I sort of feel like I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's your favourite type of infrastructure, and why? <laughs> um, you know what? Every time I go over the bridge uh, at Rouse Hill no matter how many problems it had to get there, you can't fail to be inspired by something uh, as a uh, rail over road bridge that's really attractive, really works, uh, and you can see why it won so many awards. Um, and that is, um, we use it all the time on our marketing material. You know, if you see a picture of Sydney Metro, it's generally a train going over that bridge, and it's pretty impressive. Having said that, when I go down into under Martin Place right now, um, and from the surface, you can see nothing of what's going on, really. You can hear plenty when you walk through it, but you can't see anything. But you go underground and you see the size of the station as it's being developed, the scale of engineering that's going on, uh, the way it's being designed, uh, the way it's being delivered, um, with fantastic contractor effort on that, I give them credit. Um, you've got to take pride in that. Uh, that is going to be quite some place to visit. So rail bridges specifically and station boxes, they're your favorite types of infrastructure. Of course. <laughs> John Lamont, thank you very much for uh, a really fascinating time spent with you talking about the past, the present and the future. Thanks You're for welcome. joining us. Thank you. Thanks, John. So uh, that was John Lamont, CEO of Sydney Metro Authority. I really enjoyed the chat with him. He's got a really great story to tell. Uh, and importantly, he's a really passionate advocate for both public transport more broadly, but also what Sydney Metro can do uh, as the project's rolled out. I know from my own experience back in the UK, uh, the tube lines project and things like transport for Greater Manchester had a dramatic effect on those cities. And I think it's great that Sydney will get to benefit from, uh, from that experience that he's brought with him. Um, that's it for today. Um, of course, thanks to John for uh, coming on the show. Thanks to Ilya for hosting with me. Uh, there was a bit of a bigger gap this time between uh, this episode and previous ones because I was on holiday. Um, so if you please make sure you subscribe so you get notified about the upcoming podcast. There'll be one out soon and many more before the end of the year. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any thoughts or guest suggestions, please uh, let us know. You can let, do that on LinkedIn or by contacting us directly. Uh, we post updates on LinkedIn as well so you can share them with colleagues and contacts. That's it for today and thanks for listening. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC's media agency. Research was conducted by Michael Player and Linda Bergerson.